in the name of God, I take you to be husband and wife, to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. How many of you have heard these words before? Here in the Christian faith, this is the prelude to being committed as husband and wife. Your own life, whether you are married or not, if you've ever heard those words, have you thought about what it would actually mean for richer, for poorer? What does it actually mean for better, for worse? Most importantly, what does it mean in sickness and in health? Is that a commitment that you've made and are holding as true? My name is Valerie Hope, and I am your host for Time to Come Alive. It's an opportunity for us to have every week mindful conversation to bring us to become more conscious, more connected, and as a result, more creative. I have the beautiful opportunity to invite a guest every week to share their experiences, their life, and hopefully there's something there that will spark some life into your own. Today, I welcome Dottie Gandy. She's a bright, shining star in the state of Texas, as far as I'm concerned. Dottie and I met through a common friend, LaRue. LaRue, you've seen LaRue Epler on the past episode of Time to Come Alive. And in the introduction, although LaRue introduced Dottie and me through just an email, and Dottie then and I had an opportunity to have a conversation on the phone, Dottie, I was always so, I don't know, I was taken aback by the amount of joy and fun energy that I felt from you from day one on our conversation on the phone, I think we spoke for almost an hour about everything <laughs> in such a short period of time. And I don't, I don't take for granted those connections. And then lately you also introduced me to a phenomenal dynamic group of people called the Up to Something Gang. Well, you're not really a gang, but I think you should be. Crew. <laughs> Crew. <laughs> and it's just been uh, such a joy to, to meet you, to learn about you. And I'm just wanting to say, first of all, welcome to Time to Come Alive. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Yay. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about yourself. I just shared how you and I met, but give, give our listeners some, some context for who you are or who you came to be. Well, let's see. At my age, I can pick and choose a lot of stuff. So why would I want to pick anything that was less than glamorous or affirming? But <laughs> I was born and raised in Waco, Texas, graduated from Baylor University, went off to take a summer job in Washington, D.C., married, raised a family, lived there 28 years, and then returned to my home state of uh, Texas about 30 years ago because I remarried my college sweetheart. So anyway, yeah. that's, that's a part of my story. I've had an extraordinary career. There's not much I haven't done or tried and I've loved every moment. I love that. And there are so many things to talk about. You know, you and I literally, <laughs> we talked about everything. And I just thought that today would be wonderful, at least to start 
that that whole notion of you meeting your college sweetheart. I just love the story that you shared with me. Would you mind telling us again what how you okay. met and how yeah how that all came about? Yeah, so Tom Gandy and I met when we were students at Baylor in the 60s, and we dated for a couple of years. And then by the time Tom was a senior, he was very committed to going off to the Baptist seminary and become a preacher. And I didn't think that was in the cards for me. And so we sort of went our separate ways. Tom married, went off to the seminary, raised a family. I went off to Washington, D.C. after I graduated for a summer job and wound up staying there for 28 years. And so it was that 28 years after Tom and I graduated from Baylor, uh, serendipitously, our paths crossed. And even though he was in Texas and I was in Washington, D.C., within six months, I had moved back to Texas uh, to marry Tom. 28 years after we graduated from Baylor. Wow. Okay, so 28 years, and you hadn't been, been in contact with one another that entire time. Not at time. all. Had no idea where he had been or what he'd been up to, and the same was true for him. Wow. Okay, so take us back to the moment that you reconnected. What was, what was the circumstance, and what, what was the feeling? Well, it was interesting because I had been divorced for a couple of well, I'd been divorced for several years. And when I decided that I wanted to reconnect again or maybe have another person in my life as a spouse, um, I began making a list of what I thought the characteristics should be of a successful relationship. And so I had come up with this thing that said, first, we're gonna be good friends then we're gonna see if our values are shared. And third, only after those two things are in place do I wanna consider whether or not there's a romantic connection. So when our paths serendipitously crossed, uh, it wasn't like stars going off right away, but then I remembered, I said, first we have to have the same values, which I figured out that we did. And first, I secondly, I realized that we could, in fact, be great friends. And it was when those two things connected that all the bells and whistles went off. And I moved back to Texas uh, and married Tom. And that marriage, uh, as I say, began 28 years ago. Wow. Well, okay. Did you have this list of, of characteristics 28 years before when you guys were dating at Baylor? Yes, I did, and I shared them with him. Uh, it's, uh, and Tom was very much in alignment with him. He had tried ministry for a few years, but the bulk of his career had been spent uh, working in the oil fields of Libya and Tunisia. And he was actually now, when he and I remet, he was the vice president of sales for a medical supply company owned by one of our other Baylor colleagues, and that one happened to be in the Dallas area. So um, anyway, it just all worked. It clicked at the same time. I think that's so lovely. And I don't know if in college, the list that I had <laughs> for my future relationship would have been as enlightened. Well, as, now as mind the... you, this list was created 28 years after I graduated from college when ah. I said, okay, I'm ready. 
I think I'm ready to be married again. Okay. So. I, I, well, I just, I want to highlight that because there is something about in what you said initially when you guys met, obviously you had a, a, a wonderful relationship in college, but you knew that there was something that didn't align for you. And you walked away and decided that you were going to pursue whatever your passion was, which was moving to DC and having a family and life there. And I love the, the idea that you got represent to who you wanted to be in life. And now, you know, I had a list too, but my list, in, at least that young, when I was what, age 17, age 30 something, my list was all about who the guy should be, what he should look like, what career he should have. But you specifically created a list of qualities in a relationship. Yes. Yes, yeah. it had nothing to do with what he looked like or what I looked like. There was, or show me your resume and I'll show you my resume. I really was looking to see if our values were shared and if this was a, could be a very deep friendship. Mm. And we knew almost immediately after we reconnected yeah. um, that this was, this was the time for us to be in relationships. So. This was a time. And... I also believe in, well, my label for this is divine serendipity. We find ourselves in the right place at the right time for reasons we never could have anticipated. And my 28 years in Washington, D.C. were extraordinary. As you know, uh, in the 70s, I was paired up with another woman. We were wanting to do a consulting firm and women were not recognized as business owners. So my business partner and I got together with about a half a dozen women in the back room of our little office in Washington, D.C., and we said, we need to figure out how to support each other as business owners, because in the early 70s, women could not be part of the Chamber of Commerce. Hmm. We could not join the Rotary Club. We could not be the JC, be part of the JCs, etc. So this group of probably six or seven women said, we're going to figure out how to support each other. And I think really we were in the right place, Washington, D.C., at the right time because there was a lot of equal employment opportunity legislation starting to be introduced. And so that group of six women became the founding mothers of what is now the National Association of Women Business Owners that is still going strong. There are chapters all over the United States that support women in being successful business owners. And all of this is a way of saying, I, I think that part of the reason I was in Washington, D.C. was to be an advocate mm -hmm. uh, for women. And you also know the other story that uh, my first job was working for a U.S. Senator from Texas. And I remember in August of 1963, when he called us into his office and said, there is a gentleman speaking at the Washington Mall tomorrow, and I'm closing the office. Uh, I can't force you to go, but I encourage you to go and hear what this man has to say, because I'll be sitting behind him at the Lincoln Memorial. And so that was another historic occasion. I was there when Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And as a little girl from Waco, Texas, I knew that I it was okay dream big. So when I think about starting the women's group and my experience with Dr. King, uh, that, 
that would not have happened if Tom and I had married and I'd gone off to seminary with him 30 years earlier or whatever. So I always, I believe that we're in the right place at the right time, even though it may sometimes not feel like that. Absolutely. And I'm also curious about, you said you'd been married and you divorced at that point too. What, what shifted for you in that 28 year period in regards to your values and in regards to the character that you found was important to be in a type of relationship? Obviously you had some fantastic experiences, but what, what shaped you there? I think the experiences shaped me. And I will say in full disclosure that my first husband and I are still very good friends. We had these two extraordinary daughters that we shared custody of. uh, And both of us, I say, did that job very well. He currently lives in Texas, is remarried, as am I. And uh, so it's... I. There was no room for me to want to feel bitter about Mm -hmm. something. You know, it was like, well, what else could I choose if not bitter? And it took a while to transition that relationship from one of divorced wife to best friend or good friend. But Mm -hmm. he is my good friend. And uh, I think that's a part of my value system. We look for reasons to like everybody. We can look, I mean, I turn on the news and I can find a lot of reasons to not like a lot of things and a lot of people, mm-hmm. but ultimately I think it's our choice how we show up in life. And so I got to choose the values that I said worked for me. And you know, too, I had an extraordinary uh, career working almost 17 years with Dr. Stephen Covey's organization. And my gosh, if there was anybody whoever could fill you up with delicious values. It was Covey writing in the seven habits of highly effective people. So I think that Valerie, I've always been in the right place at the right time for the right reason, even though I may not have known what that reason was. Mm. The reason found me. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I so believe that. I think I, I really, connect to a lot of the things that you shared. My ex-husband and I also are good friends to this day. I consider him almost like a brother, which wasn't at the, at the time, obviously, you know, <laughs> different, different quality of relationship. But, but I think what you also point to is that not only did your experiences shape you, that you are really internalizing a lot of those lessons, those exposures that you had did something for how, to influence your soul so that you were prepared for whatever the next step was. And I think that's something, something that I'm learning as I go, is that I, I can't control and manage everything, but the, the things that do come, what I can control is how I allow them to, to shape me and yes. who I decide to be. I learned a long time ago, Valerie, that when I think that I have some say over shaping how life is, uh, I have a feeling that life is just laughing wholeheartedly. There goes Dottie again, thinking she knows where this is going. Yeah. Uh, so I guess that the other word there, Valerie, that you and I would share is we've learned to surrender to what's in front yes. of us. Yes, yes. I, and I, I'm saying, yes, you, me, surrendering. I'm learning <laughs> to, sur- to surrender. To I'm learning. to do every yes. single day. It's a choice. You're absolutely right. And sometimes we surrender. I surrender over and over and over again. And I can kind of see sort of God rolling her eyes or his eyes saying, 
when is Dottie going to get this? Okay, I'll <laughs> give her another lesson. Maybe this time she'll get it. So, you know, I'm yeah. learning to surrender to what's right in front of me. That's, I love that. And you're right. That's, that's really the, that's the experiment, right? It's the experiment is whatever comes to us, can we surrender to it? So let's come back to your relationship with Tom. So I'm really curious about you now, you, you've seen each other, you reconnect after 28 years, you've determined that yet the best friend is there, the, the values are there, then, then the spark is there. So six months, whirlwind, you get back together. What happens next? Well, we figure out what life is like. You know, for me, uh, my for Tom was happily employed. For me, I thought, okay, now I need to decide what career I want to have in Texas. And I was very fortunate because uh, the year before I moved here to marry Tom was when Covey's Seven Habits book was published. And my business partner in DC and I had chosen to give that book as a Christmas gift to our clients the year before. And so in the early days before that book became so explosive, there used to be an 800 number in the back of the book. And I called that 800 number and I said, hi, I'm in Texas and I love the seven habits. Can y'all use somebody like me? And uh, they said, well, actually we're thinking about where to open our first regional office. They were a Utah based company. And I said, well, open it in Texas. And they said, great, we've got about, we're looking at several locations. We have several hundred applications so far for people who would like to represent us in their recent, and I thought, okay, okay, this was before computers, I couldn't do all that stuff. So I sent them my resume, and then that 800 number, I probably called it every day for three weeks. I don't know whether I was speaking to the custodian or to the president <laughs> or whoever, I was just basically saying, <coughs> excuse me, hey, it's me, don't forget about my resume. And, <laughs> a lot of divine circumstances again, uh, Texas was given the nod and I was privileged to open Covey's first regional office uh, here in the Dallas, Texas area. And of course, that was a transformative experience too, because I got to work with clients who really resonated with the values and the teachings of the seven habits. And I am one of those people. I have my seven habits book someplace here. There we go. Close by. Yep. Earmarked with a lot of wonderful notes. So yes, absolutely. Beautiful book. I'm curious about, you, you mentioned the first time around with Tom that he was going to be a Baptist preacher. Therefore, that was not going to be your life. So when you remarried, was he a preacher? And did you have to become a preacher's no, wife? No, 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 no. The preacher thing lasted uh, just, I think, three or four years. And as I say, he wound up spending the bulk of his career uh, working in the oil fields of Libya and Tunisia, and then had come back here and taken a job as a sales VP for one of our uh, Baylor colleagues whose business was here in Texas. So, no, Tom was doing that work uh, okay. when he and I remit. Got it. Okay, so then the, the whole idea of being a Baptist wife, did, a Baptist well, preacher's wife. That still probably hasn't changed. Nothing against ministers' wives. I'm just smart enough to know that I was not cut out to be one. That was not for you. <laughs> and and so how, so the marriage with, with Tom, talk to us about what were the highlights of that relationship? Wow. Well, as Tom was 
someone who had spent a lot of his career in the oil fields and now he's working in sales and stuff. I think the first thing that really, really surprised me uh, was that I think on our third or fourth Christmas together, Tom's gift to me was a volume of original poetry written about our love affair and our life together. And I thought, where did Tom Gandy, the poet, come from? And when did all of this happen? And he shared with me, he said, I would wake up in the middle of the night and this poetry would fall or out of me. And I am still blown away by the fact that I have a volume of love poetry that tells the story of our uh, relationship. So here's a guy who was as comfortable in the oil fields of Libya and Tunisia as he was writing poetry. It made me mm. wonder if he didn't have a past life in Shakespeare's time <laughs> or something. So Tom was a person of many, many facets. So here was the poet, the humorist, the salesperson, the spiritual person. I mean, he was kind of the full, uh, the full package. Our Tom had one son who was full-time military, who was the same age as my younger daughter. So we had these three kids, but our kids were all grown and out of the house. So it was just for Tom and me to figure out. And the other thing that I would share about Tom was when he and I re-met, he had just gotten his private pilot's license. Mm. And so when we were looking for a place to live in Texas, we in the Dallas area, we were looking at several places and we couldn't find anything that gelled. And so our realtor finally said, okay, in the real world, what would your ideal home be? And Tom said, well, my ideal home doesn't exist because I would want to live on a private airstrip and have my car, my plane in a hangar and all this, not the other. Now he didn't mm -hmm. even have a plane at the time. The realtor said, I've got just the spot for you. And up in Allen, Texas, which is a northern suburb, there was, that was started in the 70s, a hmm. private airstrip called Kitty Hawk. And it was on 65 acres. And there were five five-acre home sites, each with a hangar, on either side of a 10-acre grass-lighted FAA-approved landing strip. So that was a big jump from Washington, D.C. townhouse to moving here. So Tom was also uh, a pilot. He had a hangar where he could keep his little Cessna, and nothing thrilled him more than when he was literally up in the clouds and doing his thing. And my parents were aging and living in Waco, so it was nice to have a husband whose plane, little Cessna, could fly us to Waco when it was time to go see parents or something so there's so that whole aspect so tom's the pilot and the poet my goodness he was like an action hero <laughs> well it's sometimes it felt like that that uh tom was of the two of us tom was very much the calmer more reasoned uh person i'm the one that always had to be running and going and get, and so tom was a nice uh balancing act for me in that regard i get that and, and so tell us a little bit about when you, so you and Tom have this idyllic life, it sounds like you found a place to live where he's able to exercise his dream of flying. You found your niche working with Covey in the regional office. And then some, as your relationship continued, tell us a little bit about what started to happen in his decline. 
Well, Tom and I had been married probably 22, 23 years when I started to notice that he was becoming uh, forgetful. He would head off to, let's say, a doctor's appointment, and then an hour later, the doctor's office would call and say, Tom never showed up. Does he remember he has an appointment? And I thought, okay. Uh, so anyway, there started to be some incidences like that, and our physician suggested that Tom be tested for Alzheimer's. And um, he was tested, and it was determined that he was in the early stages of Alzheimer's, whose particular kind of Alzheimer's was called frontal lobe dementia. And if you're going to get saddled with Alzheimer's, it's probably the best kind to have in the sense that it's only your short-term memory that gets affected. We didn't have the anger issues, the wandering away issues. Uh, the Parkinson's issues, all of these things can be a component of Alzheimer's. Hmm. But at the same time Tom was diagnosed, I was still blowing and going in my career. And that came to a screeching halt when I realized that Tom would need a full-time caregiver. And the obvious person to be that caregiver was me. Uh, and in the beginning, I naively said to myself, well, how hard can this caregiving thing be? I figured a lot of stuff out. Well, I was not prepared for the answer that came, and it came harshly and it came quickly. And that is, uh, being a full-time caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's can be an extremely challenging um, assignment. And I had a lot of resistance up front. It was a lot easier for me to focus on everything that I was losing in my life, a career that I loved, the aspects of Tom that were no longer there, et cetera. And so I was very belligerent. And I realized one day as someone who's always believed that everyone could and should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, I was suddenly married to someone who no longer had bootstraps. Hmm. And so I would start going to Alzheimer's meetings and caregiver support meetings. And we would hear statistics like this. It is not unusual for the caregiver to die before the person that he or she is caring for. And the reason for that is you surrender care of self because you become so fully engaged in caring for this other person. Mm. And like I said a while ago, as someone who said everybody can and should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, and this man no longer had bootstraps, how was I supposed to fill in those gaps and take care of myself at the same time? Mm -hmm. And I realized that continuing to live in resistance to this role was not going to serve me any longer. And it's when I surrendered to, okay, I need to find out how to be the best giver, caregiver on the planet because this man deserves it. And that began a five-year journey that was transformative for me in ways I could never have experienced. Uh, in fact, one of the talks I give now is why me, why this, why now? And then that fourth key question is why not? It was mm. truly difficult, challenging, and transformative. 
uh, what supported me in getting through this journey was my belief in what I would call five spiritual principles. Others might call it the golden rule or the Ten Commandments or what my mom and dad said I should do. Whatever those tenets and values are that you choose to live your life by, Mm -hmm. For me, it was five spiritual values. And when I surrendered to what is it they have to teach me as a caregiver, my life as a caregiver was transformed. And I like to think that Tom's experience as someone with Alzheimer's was also transformed by having a caregiver who was there first and foremost for him. You, you used a word early on when you started to talk about this experience with Tom once he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, you mentioned the word assignment and, and the fact that you resisted the assignment, right? That, so talk to us about how and what you saw in this experience that made it an assignment for you. Well, in the beginning, the assignment for me showed up more as what I was no longer able to do. You know, okay, I've been assigned to be a caregiver for this person, but what about my career? I mean, I was on an airplane traveling all the time, and clearly that was not going to be an option. So in the beginning, my focus was uh, embarrassingly said a lot about, but what about me? You know, I've got this, I've got my life all figured out. Somebody said, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. I had this all figured out. And... uh, I realized when I surrendered and looked at these spiritual principles that I was actually on being guided on a chosen path that was absolutely transformative. I am a different person today because of my journey as a full-time caregiver for a spouse um, with Alzheimer's. And actually, one of those uh, principles said, God is present in all of us. And it was shocking to me because I thought, well, in that case, that must mean God is as present in Tom as he is in me. And yet sometimes Tom's behavior did not resemble very godlike qualities. And neither did mine. So it's when I realized that God was as present in Tom as he is in me, that transformed our relationship. And I'll give you an example of that. Mm -hmm. This is not uncommon for many with Alzheimer's, but Tom became transfixed by nature. He would spend hours sitting on the back porch of our home, mesmerized by the clouds or the sun or the rain or the trees or whatever. And I thought, you know what? He's experiencing life from God's perspective, and I was still engaged in a much more human approach to life. And where this really got triggered was when Tom and I were driving in the car, I might have been taking him somewhere or whatever, and Tom would be gazing out his side of the car window talking about how beautiful the trees were. Look at the clouds today. And I would be much more caught up in this awful rush hour traffic and why don't these people drive the way I think they should and da 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 da. And it was an aha moment when I realized that Tom 
knew how to experience a lot more of life from God's perspective than I did. And so I think that what I learned was to surrender and embrace um, maybe a more spiritual perspective. Now, I, I will share with you a very personal anecdote. I thought, okay, if Tom can be in rush hour traffic and not have it be upsetting, I can too. So I came up with this new mantra. I am a safe and courteous driver surrounded by safe and courteous drivers. And I can tell you that the first half of that I have mastery in. I became a very safe driver. And for a long time, I was a work in progress on the courtesy thing. Uh, <laughs> but in any event, that's, a, and I'm sharing this story because it was Tom who was transforming me in my role as a caregiver and that. There's a, another spiritual principle that talks about with God is present in Tom as he is in me. And I thought one of the, any caregiver for somebody with Alzheimer's will tell you that one of our biggest angst experiences is uh, when your spouse or loved one asks you the same question over and over and over again. It mm. will test even the most patient people. So what I learned from this spiritual principle was, well, here's for example, Typical late afternoon in our home, Tom would be sitting in the recliner and he would say something like, so what are we having for dinner tonight? And I would give him an honest answer. Tom, I'm going to make chicken pot pie. That's one of your favorites. Oh, he says, that sounds good. And about 10 seconds would pass and he would say, so do we have any plans for dinner tonight? And after about the third or fourth time, I would find myself responding like this. Yes, Tom, we're having chicken pot pie. <laughs> so when I realized that Tom was not interested in what we were having for dinner, he was really just making conversation mm. the only way someone with Alzheimer's uh, knew how. And so... I decided to add a little humor. When Tom said, what are we having for dinner? I'd say chicken pot pie. 30 seconds, he'd say, what are we having for dinner? I would say egg salad sandwiches. I would give him a different answer. Each time he asked the question, you see, number one, he never remembered what the answer was. And number two, as I said, he was just making conversation. That's, that's so interesting. I don't think I've ever heard anyone express it quite that way, that the only way to engage in conversation is sometimes whatever comes to mind and this repetitive thought is what was coming to mind. And I also think it's quite brilliant that you chose, right, that word choice again comes up, that you chose after many attempts at, <laughs> at addressing your frustration to, to make this almost an exercise in improvisation for you. Well, it was, and you know, the realization that this Tom had no curiosity really about dinner. Uh, when I realized that, I thought, well, what? Why does he keep asking? And uh, the answer came immediately. He's just trying to make conversation the only way he knows how. And so there is another great teaching moment with the person with Alzheimer's teaching his caregiver. Mm, 
that was just a way for, for him to connect. And I imagine that can be said for a lot of things that perhaps annoy us about how we are approached, how we're engaged by others, is that what if, and this is kind of the question I'm formulating as you're sharing this, like what if what people are saying and doing is not literally what they're saying or doing, yes. but is an, a way for them to connect. There's, it's really almost a spiritual arrogance to assume that we know when somebody says or does something or doesn't say or do something that we have the answer and have it all figured out. Mm. I call that spiritual arrogance. Yeah. And I think, as I said, my when I look back on this whole experience of being a caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's, my belief is that Tom chosen the harder path. I think that God or spirit, however you want to call that, had been trying to get my attention for a long time. And I think at some point, God said, I have to figure out some way to stop Dottie in her tracks and remind her that we are on this journey together. Mm. And so when you have a husband with Alzheimer's, it'll stop you in your tracks in a heartbeat. But yeah. the gift that that role as a caregiver was, um, was one of the most positive, powerful learning experiences of my life. And it continues mm. to be so. I can absolutely see and hear that. I, I want to go back to something, Dottie. You mentioned, you know, the, the resistance, right? And you shared, you know, it sounds like some of the frustration that came with this experience. That was part of the resistance. But you think back, what else... As you were getting uh, or accepting this new life, what else showed up as resistance? I'm just curious in case people are out there listening that may not be aware of what's happening could be labeled resistance. What, how did that show up for you? Well, probably in several different ways. One was having to own the knowing that the man that I knew when we married, that that, that, that person was gone. And that no matter how hard I worked as a caregiver or know how, Tom, there's not a cure hmm. for Alzheimer's. And so I think that it was learning to love Tom as he is on a day-to-day -day basis. Not as I would wish him to be, not as he used to be, but whoever he is in this moment on this day, uh, my job is to meet him where he is because he was unable to meet me where I am. And so again, um, this caregiver journey for me was just exercise and surrender every day in a different way. Although I will share one interesting thing. It's nobody really knows why the person with Alzheimer's remembers some things and forgets others. But for all of the things that Tom could not remember how to do, he steadfastly remembered how to play gin rummy. And I think, again, I used one of my spiritual principles to figure out how to survive playing two to three hours of gin rummy a day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and just be in surrender that this is what he knows how to do. And I, if I were being totally honest, I would also share that 99% of the time, Tom beat me. 
uh, Jen Rummy, who was a tough, but there again, where does the ability to remember how to play Jen Rummy come from? Yeah. I don't know, but it was one thing that we could share and do uh, daily. So probably the single most transformative experience occurred when I was trying to get Tom out of bed one morning, and at this point, he was about three or four or five years into having Alzheimer's, uh, he was having some balance issues. And so, and he was very stubborn about not wanting to use a walker or a cane. And so I wanted to make sure I was getting him out of bed safely with no risk of falling. And after we struggled for a few minutes, I said, Tom, let's just lie back here and chill out. I'm going to figure this out. And in about, oh, four or five minutes, Tom tapped me on the shoulder. And Valerie, I will say to you that I swear that there was no hint whatsoever of Alzheimer's in this man's eyes when he looked at me quietly and said, I'm dying. And six weeks later, he peacefully transitioned. Mm. There was no evidence that said Tom was going to die. But again, it's like, well, I make this part up, but I believe it. I think that Tom said, my role here as a teacher for Dottie is done. She can take it from here. Mm. And how I know he was ready to surrender this life that at some level wasn't working for him either. is when hospice was brought in just a few days before uh, Tom passed away, mm -hmm. they had a hospital bed that they put in our uh, master bedroom. And Tom was sedated most of the time, but I noticed that he kept trying to throw his arms and legs over the sides of this bed. And I thought, he's going to hurt himself on these rails. What is he doing? And when the hospice nurse came in the next morning, I explained this behavior. And I said, what's wrong with him? And she said, Mrs. Gandy, there is nothing wrong with him. She said, he's ready to leave, and he's doing it the only way he knows how. She said, he's trying to leave physically. And later that night, Tom peacefully passed away. So uh, I still get goosebumps when I tell that story um, because I'm very clear that Tom's willingness to experience Alzheimer's was not his way of punishing me. It might have been one of the greatest gifts mm. I've ever received from uh, anyone. And in addition, I would also add, Valerie, that in addition to the spiritual principles, there was one other mantra that got me through the caregiver's journey, and it kind of showed up in the lyrics of a Beatles song that says, we get by with a lot of help from our friends. <laughs> And trust me, if you're a caregiver for somebody with Alzheimer's, you don't survive that journey without a lot of help from your friends. One of my favorite examples is uh, Tom liked to go to this little Mexican restaurant not far from our home. But like many people with Alzheimer's, reading a menu was almost an impossible challenge. It was just an overwhelming amount of information that was assaulting his mind. And so this little waiter uh, who took care of us a lot, uh, I told him one day about Tom's challenge with the menu. And he said, I've got this. So every time we went in that, way, that restaurant, 
and we would sit down and they would put menus in front of Tom with me. This waiter would run over, grab Tom's menu and say, Tom, you don't need that menu. I'm fixing you my specialty tonight. And he would fix Tom the only dish on the menu that he knew Tom liked. Hmm. So you don't get by without a lot of help from your friends. And I might add that at Tom's celebration of life service, when I stood up to speak to the crowd, uh, that waiter was sitting on the last row of that church. And I would also add under this thing called you get by with a lot of help from your friends. One of the painful things for a caregiver for somebody with Alzheimer's is you see people, friends, walk quietly out of this person's life. Mm. And it is painful to watch, but totally understandable. They don't know how to relate anymore and Tom would not know how to relate with them. But I have a best friend named Jen Belcher and she and her husband, John Belcher, never ever considered walking out of our lives. Every week when Tom had Alzheimer's, they would call and invite us to go to dinner and a movie with them over the weekend. Now Tom would sleep through the movie mm. because his the Alzheimer's brain was not able to follow a plot. But I nonetheless sense that he thought I'm doing what normal people. You're doing, I'm sorry, say that again, doing what? I'm doing what normal people normal do. People. See, I'm just one of the regular folks. Here. Yeah. And then after the, after the movie, we would all go out to dinner together and God love Jan. She would carry on a 30 minute conversation with Tom and I don't know how she pulled that off. And I would have this normal adult conversation with her husband. <laughs> One of the greatest gifts ever. And so what I would say to this waiter, Ray, and what I would say to my friends, Jan and John, I am indebted to them for the rest of my life. Mm. People who insist on stepping up to the plate. So you don't get by with a lot of, without a lot of help from your friends on the temporary journey. And it goes back to what you shared about the, the notion that the person that's a caregiver sometimes gives up the care for him or herself, right, in service of, of this loved one. And it sounds like having these relationships where people were able to give you, if nothing else, just a moment of respite, a yes. moment of, of relief of not having to have uh, the, the responsibility on your shoulders yes. solely to entertain, to care for, to feed, to clothe, to move. <sighs> it just... takes a strong willingness on their part to do that, uh, and they did. Yeah. And like I say, um, I would not have gotten through this journey. And when people say, "Why, you know, Tom died two years ago. Why do you want to continue talking about this?" Mm. And I said, "Well, if you go to the Alzheimer's website, they have a couple of interesting statistics there. One of which, and to me, this is startling. Every 66 seconds, somebody in the United States is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And as of today, when you and I are speaking, there is no cure. So the baby boomers who were the largest percentage of population now that they're retiring and retirement age, uh, sure, we're gonna see a much larger percentage of people doing a lot of things that older people do but that's also the, the caregiver's thing too. When you think 
that every 66 seconds, somebody is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Hmm. And that's just in the US. The other stat that is riveting for me is that if you are 50 or older today, 80% of us will either be a caregiver or need a caregiver before we die. Wow, that's just an alarming statistic. So when people say, why do you want to keep talking about this? Mm. This is why I value conversations, Valerie, with people like you, because this is not just about caregivers and Alzheimer's. It's about how you choose to live your life in a transformed way. And we have a lot of opportunities uh, to do that. I know from what you've shared of your own story with us one-on-one, -on -one, you've gone through a ton of transformations in your own life. Mm -hmm. And each one of us, each one of them has gotten us to where we are today. Mm -hmm. And I, I love what you said that the choosing to live life in a trans transformed way. And this, you know, this story that you share, although it's very specific to you and your relationship with Tom and, is Alzheimer's diagnosis is also as much about caring for oneself in life. And, yes. and it sounds like throughout your life that you've been so mindful and increasingly so about what you are here to do, who you are here to serve, how you can continue to live peacefully. Yes. And, and there's just a, such a high level as, as you shared these examples of what you did to overcome the resistance and to chip away at that sense of control and planning that your level of being present in the moment expanded. Like every choice that you made, it seemed that there was this presence of mind about what you needed to do in that moment. Yes, and there, you know what, Valerie, there's an arrogance in saying, I don't need anybody's help. I'll figure this out on my own. I've been there and done that. And I think, like I say, I would not have survived this caregiver's journey or pro well. I've shared with you, whether it was Dr. Martin Luther King or whether it was a gazillion other people, people are dying to help us succeed and we need to pay attention when these life lessons come and instead of resisting them, if we surrender to them and say, hmm, didn't see that coming, I wonder what there is for me to learn here. Hmm. And I think it transforms whatever that experience is, whether it's good news or bad news, whether it's sad news or whatever, I think, uh, and for me, I take great comfort in knowing that I am not on this uh, journey alone. I, I have a spiritual partner and I know that. And hmm. That's and my that's story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and, and I think you've also, for me, inspired me, I need to reach out. There's a friend of mine whose mother has uh, dementia and who's she's been responsible for care for caring for her mother and I've really kind of leaned away from the relationship because there was so much energy and time spent it was sometimes hard for us to manage to arrange something and I didn't always understand some of the struggle around it and then also I think you know in her own way she was trying to manage everything as best she could on her own but I think what you're re reminding me is that not only do individuals that are caregivers need support, but they also don't need to be abandoned, right? They also, there's an opportunity for us to show up, if nothing else, just to be present in whatever small way we can be. You know what, that is, that is such a, 
an important thing that you just shared. And for example, my best friend, Jen Belcher, something else that I could do, which every caregiver has these moments, sometimes daily, sometimes more than once daily, where you just want to shout and scream and say, I can't do this anymore. And if you have a best friend who will just be there and receive that anger, that vindictiveness, that whatever it is, and then as soon as you leave the room, she tosses that away. Mm. But it was like she held the space for me to be who I was in that moment because on this journey, I was not always the world's best example and a shero. Uh, I needed a lot of help from my friends, and I think one of the best gifts a friend can give you is just to say, is, is to be their committed listener, uh, Valerie. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter where they are on the journey, if they're happy or angry or upset or worried or ecstatic, wherever they are on the journey, to have a friend who will just hold the space for them to share that, it's an extraordinary gift. And I suspect your friend would welcome that gift mm -hmm. with open arms. Absolutely. And in this last couple minutes before we wrap up, what else would you like to share with those who might be on either the receiving end or in the process or going through something similar to what you described? Uh, number one, it's a journey that's survivable. It can be one of the great learning journeys of your life. And I, again, will say for me, it was these five spiritual principles that I kept leaning on time and time and time again. So whatever support looks like for you, um, embrace it, take it, um, and just remember that I, my belief is we're all on this uh, journey uh, for a reason. Oh, absolutely. Ah, oh, Dottie, always such a pleasure. And, you know, we could talk about so many other things. Your wealth of life experience is always so, <laughs> it's humbling to see how much not only have you done, but also how, how much you've done, but also how far you've come in, in the process and how much you're willing to Well, you better, if you live as long as I have, I'll be 80 in June. Um, <laughs> you, you, better ha you better have some important life experiences. You better have learned something by now. Absolutely. You mentioned that you, you obviously speak about this topic quite a bit. If someone here is interested in more information of how to connect with you or perhaps get information about topics you speak about or where they can listen to you next, where could they, would they find this out? They can find me by going to my uh, email, which is d-o-t-t-i-e-g-a-n-d-y at gmail.com. I had a website for a long time, and when Tom was diagnosed and my role changed, I shut down the website, and I've not chosen to uh, put it back up again, so, but I do refer to myself these days as a transformative speaker. I want to transform how people think, so send me an email. I'll send you some video clips. I'll send you as much information as you would like and would be honored to do so. 
Oh, absolutely. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes. That way you don't, if those of you who missed the email address, you'll be able to find that in the notes as well as any additional information, perhaps some of the websites that were helpful for you as a caregiver, Dottie, any resources that you think would be supportive. And I run Um, a caregiver support group at my church now too. That's one of my ways of giving back. Oh, what church do you go to? Uh, Unity of Dallas. Excellent. And for about the last eight months, we started this program. It's one of my ways of giving back to the people who supported me so well. Fantastic. Well, there you have it. So those of you who are interested in connecting with Dottie personally, which who wouldn't be? (laughs) It's just such a joy to have you, Dottie's pleasure to have this conversation. I'll be sure to include your contact information and then additional resources of the things that Dottie shared with us. So that way you all can get not only I'm the, honored and it's you been a pleasure and I'm so happy that we're friends. I am too. I so appreciate you. Thank you very much. For those of you tuning in next week on February 11th, we have another special guest that Darlene Paris Young will be sharing with us her near-death experience. It's a topic that I'm always so fascinated by, but how she's come to deal with and live with trauma in her life and, and come out the other side to tell about it. So tune in for Time to Come Alive on February 11th. Dottie, once again, thank you so much for joining us today and everybody who's been listening. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you.